Welcome to Woolful, a podcast for fiber folk. I'm excited to share with you some incredible people I've had the opportunity to talk to in this community we love so much. From shearers and shepherds to knitters and shop owners, here's where you get to listen to a little part of their fiber journey. I wanted to thank one of our sponsors for this week's episode, Stash, a local yarn shop based in Corvallis, Oregon. The owner, Sonia, was a very early supporter and encourager of the podcast. It's been so great to get to know her a bit and watch all the positive energy she puts into her shop and the fiber community. If you're in the Corvallis area or just passing through, make sure to visit and you can find more info and a list of classes at stashlocal.com. And you don't want to miss a pretty special event coming up, Black Sheep Gathering a fiber festival in Eugene, Oregon, June 19th through the 21st. Stash will be there with a selection of special yarns and fibers from some of their favorite Pacific Northwest indie dyers. So make sure to mark this on your calendar and find Sonia and her gang of stash enhancers. Today we get to meet a pair of ladies who have accomplished so much in the past several years and who are behind many of the incredible yarns you use. Karen Hostetler and Valerie Spanos of Mountain Meadow Wool, a fiber mill and yarn company in Buffalo, Wyoming. I first came across Mountain Metal Wool a couple years back when I was researching eco-friendly mills and sustainable wool processing. As you'll hear, they've been involved in inventing and developing some pretty amazing processes and equipment that help them process fiber and make yarn in a responsible and sustainable way. They're both mothers who have tackled this dream of theirs wholeheartedly and worked very hard to create a service and product they can and should be very proud of. You can find Karen and Valerie at mountainmetalwool.com and on Instagram at mountainmetalwool. And with that, here's Karen and Valerie. Valerie and I met when she was pregnant with her first baby and I was teaching childbirth classes in the town, you know, and then we, so we shared the, her three children and my last three children are all about the same age. So we shared motherhood first and then we started to share a business. And uh, both of us were very natural mothers and, you know, we were very organic and cloth diapers and all that kind of stuff. But as the years went by and our children grew up and started heading off into and not being home so much is when we both decided we were going to look for something that we could do as a business, as a mother, and something that the local area needed. And that's when we started looking at the wool because our area is very rich in the Basque uh, heritage, which is the shepherds that came from the Pyrenees Mountains. And so for 100 years, they've raised sheep in Wyoming and, of course, Idaho and Utah, Nevada. So we wanted to promote what the local ranchers um, try to create a value-added product from the wool from this area. Um, both of us, you know, dabbled in crafts like um, knitting and quilting and weaving and gardening, but we had never really thought about the idea of a mill. So I'll let Valerie tell you about our first trek to Canada with our bale of wool. Yeah, we were thinking at the time, let's make wool dolls. That sounds really fun. Karen had made some really cute Waldorf-style dolls for her kids. And so we thought, well, let's get a bale of wool from our friends and put it in the back of Karen's Taurus wagon. And the closest mill at the time was Custom Woolen Mills in Canada. And so we drove up to that mill, and it was just absolutely charming. 
and they did a great job. It took them nine months to get the yarn back to us, and we thought, you know, we should be doing, somebody should be doing something like that in Wyoming. And so that's kind of where we began the journey. About that time, we were involved in a grant project. We were introduced to SBIR, which is Small Business Innovative Research, which is a federal program, a federal grant program, and many, there's lots of different research projects going on that small businesses conduct. The ones that we targeted was rural economic development through the USDA. And so in the course of that feasibility study, that's when we stood back a little bit and discovered that a, a larger size mill, a regional mill, would make the most sense for Wyoming. And so that's kind of where we began, and that's where we began to make a lot of contacts. Our initial foray was into the washing of the wool. We really were sort of ignorant about the supply chain at that time, and we thought, well, if we just wash it and leave it here close to where the producers are, it'll be cheaper to ship it. Well, it turns out that's not exactly the case, but that's where we focused our um, energies was on creating a washing system that was pretty great, and we continue to think it's really phenomenal. And it's not sinks, and it's not, you know, washing machines, which is what we really did start with until we uh, really started going. And now we have a, a washing system that's, that we're pretty proud of. Well, speaking of your washing system, that's actually how I first heard of you guys, because before I even started the podcast, I was looking into grants and I was looking at all these different organizations and you guys had popped up as, I think it was a grant that you guys received to create this like non, you know, toxic chemical scouring system. And uh, then I read an article that said something like you guys were working on developing it possibly for other mills, too. We just um, completed the second phase of that grant for the washing system. It still has a few kinks that need to be worked out. We want to work with it for a little bit longer, but, yeah, we that's uh, someplace that we will go into in the future. Right now, because we have excess capacity, we open it up to other mills, so a mill will just wash their wool here we we track it all the way through and we just do basically a wash and dry service for other mills and then we send it back to them and then they can begin spinning um one of the things that early on you know we're independent wyoming people we're going to do it all ourselves but i think early on we discovered that this industry is very collaborative and cooperative and we work with lots of different small mills larger mills dyers, knitting companies, and I think that it's a very much a spirit of cooperation will really help our industry, not just for handcrafting. I think handcrafting really has kept textiles alive in the United States um, because I, I really feel like it just totally was destroyed when everything went out of the country. And we... All of us smaller mills are the only hope left for the for the textile industry in the United States. And I think it really is time for it to turn around. Yeah, I agree. I would love to hear a little bit more, if you feel comfortable sharing, uh, about your scouring system, just kind of what makes it unique. 
it's not a like an, any sort of innovative weird technology. It was when we went and looked at some of the equipment that was out there. It was designed um, for economies of scale, you know, where they could do a million pounds a month, and we wanted it to. We wanted to have it be a medium-sized uh, facility where medium people could go and they could deal with all of the byproducts of, of washing, the uh, recycle the water, utilize the mud that was created, and harvest the lanolin. And we couldn't really find any equipment. We looked all over the world thinking, oh, surely there's somebody has thought of this before, but evidently nobody had. So using technology that has been in place for hundreds of years as far as the temperature of the water and the washing system and timing, um, we just created a five-bowl system. And when we began, which most mills have to begin this way, they, they wash it in either a washing machine or sinks. But what we did was we had a, a tank that was wood, and it had the harrows that pulled the... Um, the wool through the water. We lined those wooden tanks with pond liner and heated the water with copper pipes inside the tank. And, you know, it was pretty homemade, but it worked for us for quite a while. And what we would do is we would put the soap in the two tanks and wash the wool. Then we would hold it over in a big uh, bathtub-looking thing, drop that water, fill it with clean water, and those would be our two rinses. And so then we would put soap in the rinse water, and the process would start all over again. And that worked very well for us um, for a time until we outgrew that. And we went on to um, a more sophisticated, I guess, yeah, um, machine. And now we work on a five-bowl system um, that's working out really great. Did you guys develop the machine yourself and work with different manufacturers to create it? Well, yes. We actually created it ourselves through trial and error. We have a, a guy that works for us who was in the sawmill industry for 30 years who really knows um, motors and machines and electronics, and he's just been so um, helpful to us. And so together as a team, I guess our whole team has put it together um, and with lots of different features that we found useful in our situation, mm-hmm. like timing and um, programming, programming the water so it's not hot all night, but right. we'll turn on at a certain time in the morning to get warm and just stuff like that. Yeah. So are you guys able to harvest the lanolin through your process? Yes. We, we can. Um, so great. Yeah, it is great. Now, the next step would be, which we haven't tried too much yet, is that we're just kind of stockpiling it right now. <laughs> so we need to find somebody who can extract it and to purify it into lanolin because, as you can imagine, it's right. just in its raw it's state. Mm-hmm. And it's a grease that looks like a kind of a light brown marshmallow cream. <laughs> and um, it's great for your skin, but the smell will put you off. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be our, our next step. We've been pretty busy. Um, we've grown quite a bit over the years and um, with the spinning and spinning equipment. And, I mean, it's just been, there's a, nobody can do all of this all by themselves. Mm-hmm. So you started out 
just the two of you, how did the actual mill come to be? Um, you know, kind of walk me through the process of... Yeah, building mill. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we go out there and we're still a little bit um, in awe that it all came together. But um, we started, it was a little hard to find a, a building that was going to work. And, of course, we had no um, money, so we had a very tight budget. Um, Wyoming has a program, which is called the uh, Business Ready Communities, and so there, it's another grant program whereby the business itself or the community themselves apply for a grant to purchase a building or a property, and then they lease it to a, a new business. Um, it encourages business growth in the, in the community. So we, um, there was an empty building sitting here in Buffalo that had the right power source, and so our local government uh, applied for the grant, got it, and then we were the committed business to rent the facility. And we are still in that building. We are still renting from our local government entity, and all of our rent money goes towards economic development. And so that's how we got the building. And then we took... Um, we started the track to look for equipment. Um, we went to Texas, and there was a Roddy Wolf Scouring was going out of business, and we bought some of their equipment down there. We were got in contact with a consultant who puts together mills, small mills. Lots, he worked in mini mills for a while, and he helped us find and source the equipment from the East Coast for, you know, the throughputs we needed. So we aren't actually, we have a small um, mini-mill-style carter, but we also have a, a larger uh, full-size carter. Um, our spinners and our pliers, everything is geared for industry standards. It's pretty big. Um, our throughput had to be pretty large to make any kind of impact on the agriculture community. So um, we got all that equipment, and then it came in sh shipment loads on trucks, and we just had to be trained and learned how to run it all and put it together. And we had hired, we're very lucky to hire our plant manager, who um, it was so mechanically gifted and he was able to put equipment together understand equipment and um, you know some of our stuff was shipped to us without motors and all the wires stripped and no instruction manuals and you know it was found in warehouses so it wasn't really it, it was a challenge but we got it it's all up and running we've been here operating since 2008 we've actually been making yarn since January of 2008. Wow. Congratulations. It's been quite already, what, five, six, seven years? Yeah, we're on our seventh year, yeah. That's great. Or eighth year, yeah. As you were building this mill, and it sounds like your community was pretty involved, what was the support like as you began to kind of introduce this new business to the agricultural community around you? What was the reception like? Uh, the reception was very positive, um, especially, well, it, we have a small community. So bringing in another business, a manufacturing business, to a community that's pretty focused on agriculture and oil and gas, basically, and coal, 
excited. It was very welcome, and people were very excited about it. And the ranching community was excited. And we we keep our connection with every rancher. You know, we work with them. We work with what the kind of wool they have. We make that product, and that product stays true to the ranch where it came from. Um, we trace it back through the system, and so they they come in and they pick up a skein of yarn, and it has the name of their ranch on the back of it. And all of a sudden, there's this wonderful sense of ownership in um, a finished product that it just makes them feel more satisfied that, you know, they're doing something. They can see the end result of their hard labor. And um, ultimately, you know, we can pay them more. So, and that's, so it's a benefit to everybody. As you're kind of developing these products and, um, you know, working with the different ranchers and type of thing, I imagine there was a bit of a learning curve probably. You know, you were trained and then you kind of started to learn your machines and and what maybe fibers process the best or on your machines and that kind of thing. Tell me a little bit about that learning curve. Like, what were some of the challenges that you faced and then some of the victories that you guys had? Yeah, the whole thing has just been a tremendous victory because we were so ignorant. I look back now on the way we were when we first started. Oh, my gosh, we knew nothing about yarn production at all or and barely about yarn. We were in pretty deep, uh, pretty committed to it when we were forced to go to our first trade show. And we went, um, our research had shown that we should be going to the National Needle Arts Association um, trade show. They have a fall, well, they have a summer and a winter show. And at that point, we were in. And we had made, you know, maybe 40 skeins of yarn. And so we had to go. So we go to the show and showed our all-white yarn because we had, didn't have any dye kitchen at that point. And um, we put it up, and um, people came by, and they were very complimentary. But they would say, this is very nice. Do you have it in a DK? And we were like, what is that? <laughs> we had no idea what, they, what that even was. That's how bad we were. And now, you know, we did save that yarn. It's in um, a little bag, and we get it out once in a while, and it is full of vegetation and slubs and knots, and and I'm just appalled that that's what we put our first foot forward with. But um, we had a very nice compliment from a well-known designer, Kat Bordy, and she gave us fully alive, innocent yarn, radiant yarn. And, you know, because she was complimentary to us, um, I think that gave us so much encouragement. Mm-hmm. And so we just kept on plugging forward and learning as we went and um, learning the equipment and trying to figure out how, you know, because the, the wool in this area is a very short-stapled to us, I mean, what it what we wish it was. It's it you know it's maybe two and a half three inches, and it's a merino, so it has lots of life and spring, and um, it just be has its own mind of its own basically when you're spinning it, and it's um, very fully alive, and sometimes that means that it goes its own way. So <laughs> those were some of the things that we learned about where it's happiest. And I guess we have the best results from yarn when we treat it as if it was alive, as if, you know, when we are, oh, after we 
do our spinning and we are going to wash out the spinning oil. If we treat it as if you would like a baby in a baby bath, you know, you don't shock it, you don't jostle it around, you just are gentle with it, and we're gentle through the whole process. Mm -hmm. So it's very calming in everything that you do here at the mill. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you have a plant manager, so it's the two of you, and then how did your company grow? Well, we started out with just the three of us in this gigantic building, and we began to um, need help, of course, and so we added a spinner. We added somebody who would come and do the washing. Karen, Gary, and I were the ones who did it all at first, but, you know, it, it just kind of grew a little bit organically because we would need help, and they, and so somebody would come, they'd start out part-time, and then they'd move into full-time as we needed them. Right now, I think we have six full-time employees and three part-time employees, and it always seems like we need more. Mm-hmm. We're kind of <laughs> start and go and start and go. And yeah, and so I think it, people, we don't have a lot of turnover. People like working here and we like having them. It's, I come from a small business background, so I kind of know the nuances of working with a small intimate group to make your business run. And that works out really well. Well, that's a great segue because I was just about to ask you, what did you guys do before the mill? Well, like I said, we are both mothers. We have 10 children between the two of us. <laughs> and, um, you know, Val worked in real estate. She got a real estate license. She did an organic garlic garden for a while. Um, she worked for banking and insurance. Uh, we both dabbled in part-time work. I was um, the educator at the hospital for a while, worked at public health. You know, I did some other part-time work. Uh, nothing, we, neither one of us had worked full-time. Um, you know, we, had for, we hadn't been working full-time since our kids were around. So neither one of us really had, like, a business degree or anything like that. Uh, we did, like we said, we started off with a grant. Um, most of the initial work was done on our kitchen tables. We would alternate whose house we went to. And um, when we were in the middle of our grant writing, uh, those were like some grueling hours. And I remember ordering in pizza for the kids and putting on movies. And the two of us just, you know, our husbands travel a lot, both of them do. So we just hauled all the kids to one another's house and pounded out grants and then... Um, sent them in and were totally shocked when we actually got them <laughs> and thought, oh my gosh, what did we say we were going to do? But uh, that's how the the whole starting the mill started. It was with that um, those that feasibility study, which put us in touch with so many people who knew so much, helped us formulate a really good business plan. Um, and then we you know, it, initially we were just going to do a very kind of a hobby craft thing. It was not going to be, um, we hadn't envisioned a real mill until, like Valerie was saying, we took that bale of wool to Canada. Mm-hmm. And then the whole idea of starting a mill became something that um, it just uh, was like a snowball. It started rolling down the hill and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't we couldn't stop it. It just kept on rolling. <laughs> <laughs> 
So how old were your kids when you first started the mill? Uh, when we first started the mill, hmm, I, how old were your kids? They were in, still in elementary school. Like seven, eight years old. Eight yeah. Years. The, the youngest, both of our youngest are about the same age, so they were about seven, seven years old um, when we started. And my youngest son, he said to me when we came back from Canada, if they looked rich, the people who had the mill. <laughs> so I don't know. I didn't even look at that part. And I, anyway, should have done that maybe. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really look rich, but they were really having fun. I know. That. <laughs> How have they adapted as you've been building this business and, and been involved? You know, our children, as they grew, um, they actually worked here um, you know, a few of them would work here in the summer a little bit. We actually had them helping paint the equipment when it came in from Texas. Um, We've soured a few of them on scouring and picking wool. But Karen's son, Ben, is now um, our operations manager. Okay. And so we didn't sour them too bad, I guess. They, they still come back. <laughs> so you guys partner with different ranchers and and create your own yarn and then you process yarn for different producers right yeah we do a, we we do a lot of fee for service which you know we're producing yarn for other people who send in their different fibers but we um also we we do a pretty big business of our own yarn we sell to Yarn shops, we sell to dyers, and we also have some relationships with some businesses who make take the product into a farther place, you know. Um, they, they go into uh, sweaters or blankets or socks, things like that, yeah. So that those businesses have all kind of grown as we've grown. How have both of your guys' fiber interests grown since the mill? You mentioned that you... Didn't really know much about fiber, but I, I'm guessing since running the mill, it's maybe growing for you. Yeah, it it really has. Now um, it's funny. I can look at yarn. Just I, I mean, I pulled on my socks today, and I was looking at the yarn that made the socks and saying, "Oh, that's not so perfect either." There's a slub right there. But um, I. I think that I have a better appreciation of the um, craftsmanship and the artistry of knitters and of weavers and felters, dyers. I feel like I can almost spot um, some of the dye companies that we work with. I know I can look at yarn and, and say, oh, that one's done by Mountain Colors. That one is done by Elemental Affect. I can kind of see the signature look of different dyers. And so we've, we, can, we have a little better understanding of the nuances of the fiber itself and how um, different fibers would have been better had they been spun a certain way. Mm-hmm. Or, this, you know, this fiber is great, but it probably would have really been fabulous if it has, was done on a woolen system or, you know, just kind of small things like that that I can't even really, that, you know, experiences worth everything and and I guess that's where we where we've really grown that way is just by experiencing different types of of fleece and um, alpaca and llama and dare I say even dog hair we've only (laughs) done a very little bit of it and Karen won't let me do it anymore (laughs) (laughs) 
But um, yeah, so I mean, it, fiber is fiber, and but that said, fiber is not just fiber. It's all a little bit different, and it all has a different personality and a way it wants to behave. Mm-hmm. Do you both knit more now, or spin, or weave? Well, I never was a weaver, but now I weave, and <laughs> Karen never was a knitter, and now she knits. So <laughs> it kind of go into different directions. I think early on, um, one area that we're starting to, to do a little bit more is um, embroidery and um, cruel. cruel. And so we're, we've developed a yarn line for that, but we haven't really marketed it yet. But, boy, I sure would like to get back into that. I really like that. Mm. Wow. So, like, wool thread? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. yeah. That sounds really Yeah, great. we have a comb now, so now that has opened up a lot more avenues for different types of yarn for us. Mm-hmm. So, and I think I read on your um, blog that you were interested in Cormo, and that is one of my favorite <laughs> types of, of wool. It's very, yeah, it's just gorgeous and beautiful. Yeah. Long stapled, I think. Um, it's un- underappreciated. I feel like it's kind of trending a little bit just amongst the breed specific fiber artists lately but it's amazing i it's it is my favorite very nice i know my husband's always wanting me to get a a flock of sheep and i'm like i can't pick they're all so cool (laughs) (laughs) how would i do that of all the yarns that you either mill for other people um well i guess of all the yarns that you mill for other people, are there some brands that, you know, listeners might recognize that come from your mill? Yeah, there's actually quite a few. We do Knit Spot, uh, Ann Hansen. We do a whole line of yarn for her. It's called Stone Soup. We just started working with, a, did a yarn for Madeline Tosh, and she's another dyer. And it was, uh, I think, our DK, which is called Jackson. Elemental effects. We work with um, Jean DeCoster and yeah. and uh, do her um, base yarn so she can for dyeing sincere sheep, um, knitted wit. Those are two dyers in California. You know, we'll do anything for anybody, and we'll do it. <laughs> we'll do our very best for the you know until they say they don't like what we did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Bijou Basin. We're doing a yarn for them. Uh, done Bison for. Um, Buffalo Gold, we we haven't made their yarns, but we've done the uh, preparing of the fiber, wash and, wash and dry it, of the buff, buffalo. And that's That was an event, I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> washing, washing all that bison. So, you know, it is a small community. It's people, once you start knowing um, each other, a small industry. Mm-hmm. That's great. You know, when you look back at your journey... Uh, and you think about people that might be getting into it themselves right now, whether it's someone like myself or, you know, there's lots of, I get lots of emails from people that want to do something, whether it's a mill or farming or whatever. What words of advice would you give to them kind of looking back on your journey and them being at the very start or even before the start of theirs? Well, I think um, one of the things is never be afraid to ask for, um, information is something that you don't understand or know. Don't ever feel like you need to know it all. There's lots of experts out there who can help. Um, 
and you know the more you ask and the more you try to solicit um, information from people who know it helps you make a better product and do a better job and and um, create think of yourself in partnership with all the other mills in the country and not as a competitor and Valerie has a couple ones to say too <laughs> oh and always do the thing you hate the most first <laughs> <laughs> I would say as words of advice is, like Karen said, don't be afraid if you feel like you don't know it all. Just start. Go afraid and do it, and you you will learn it as you go. And it's not brain surgery. You're not going to kill somebody by making a mistake, but you are going to learn a lot. And also to listen to your the people who have negative things to say because what they are doing for you is helping you to not be afraid of what their criticisms are, but you have to address them. And sometimes we gloss over some of those negative comments, and we really should pay attention to them first and say, is that a valid argument? How am I going to address that? And that way you're better prepared um, when that time comes, because they may be right. They probably... Mm -hmm have more information or insight into how it's done. Mm -hmm. So um, when we first started, we were at a wool growers convention, and, um, oh, one of the people in the field, he was not a wool grower, but he um, sells a service to wool growers, and he, they were talking about how the wool industry was changing in the United States, which it has changed incredibly in the last 25 years. Sheep numbers are down. They're reaching levels where they're going to start losing wool infrastructure. So anyway, at that time, we were attending a meeting of all these wool growers, and he said to us in front of everybody, you will not succeed. Well, first of all, we thought, yes, we will. But we also, we, Karen said, so what would you do to make a difference in the wool industry if not what we're doing. And he had no answer. So on the other hand, you also have to not pay attention to people who are floundering doing it a way that's been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. Just keep on doing it. It'll make sense later on. That's such great advice. I think it's really hard for people sometimes to hear to the negative. And then on the same hand, it's sometimes hard not to get discouraged by that. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, filtering it, yeah. gathering it from what you can. Yeah. And if it seems right to you, just go with your gut. It'll it'll make sense later, like I said. And you, if you know that it makes sense logically to you, that eventually it will to other people as well. For this week's Man on the Street, I asked the question, have you ever lost your fiber or knitting mojo? What inspires you to pick up your tools and yarn again? How do you reignite the spark? Here's what a few of our Man on the Street team members had to say. Hi, this is Carrie in Santa Rosa. You can find me on Instagram at Carrie Rob. My background on graphic design taught me that variety is key. I always keep a mix of different projects at my fingertips, which might include a hat project, a linen project, a big sweater with mild of net, a complicated lace shawl, just a good variety so I can always be making something no matter my mood. I also do some natural dyeing and do a little bit of spinning, so I always have something fresh to do and I'm feeling stale. Hi, this is Amy from Atlanta. 
You can find me on Instagram at urban underscore farm underscore wife. I don't know that I've ever lost my knitting mojo, but I've come awfully close ever since I started designing patterns and knitting prototypes and multiple sizes of the same garment. When I noticed there was almost no joy left in the knitting, I promised myself that after I release a pattern, I get to knit something that I've been looking forward to or knit with a fiber I haven't tried before. My second pattern is almost ready to be released, and there's a bag of quaint linen yarn just waiting to be turned into a cardigan. Plus, a friend will need a chemo hat this fall, so that's in the queue as well. For me, the secret to maintaining my knitting mojo is constantly mixing it up. Some pattern knitting and some fun knitting, and always some gift knitting. Hey, this is Maria from Asheville, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram at ninja.chickens or at fernfiber. Um, I have definitely lost my knitting and spinning mojo before. In fact, when I started spinning, I put my needles down for almost a year before I picked them back up again. The thing that always gets me back to spinning or knitting is some inspirational pattern or yarn or something that I see that just says, I have to try this, I have to try knitting this, I have to try spinning this, I have to create something, try and create something just as beautiful. Instagram, Ravelry, Pinterest, all those places that you can see beautiful pictures or friends who do knitting and spinning are very inspirational to me. And it always comes back. Hi, this is Kirsten from Asheville, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram at littlepennycrest. I definitely notice that I lose interest in specific knitting projects when I let them sleep too long or have to rip them back too many times. To encourage myself to keep interest, I'm trying to be more monogamous with my knitting and not allow myself to buy new yarn until I'm done with one project and ready to start another. I also just started the Instagram hashtag UFO Swap Market so that knitters can browse the abandoned projects or yarn of other knitters and negotiate to trade their own unfinished objects. Sometimes all knitting needs is a new set of eyes and hands to give it new life. I hope that this can be a fun new part of the stashless and stash buster commitment that many knitters are making right now. Hi, this is Leanne Coppola from Arrow Acres Farm. You can find me at arrowacresfarm.blogspot.com. Um, it's funny that this question was asked this week because about two weeks ago, I did a post during the weekly yarn along called Getting My Knitting Mojo Back. So I had to laugh when I saw this question. Um, I found that my knitting was going in a slump and I didn't know why. And I think I figured it out. It was based on what's going on in my life at the time. been really busy. I have three kids, a lot of time at the baseball field. And I think that most of my knitting kind of has to go with my life. So it was a lot of boring knitting. It was a lot of sleeves. It was stocking knit just in the round because I couldn't handle anything too complicated because I was always on the run. So I picked up my sister's design, the Outlander cowl, and I tested on for a class I was teaching and my mojo came back and it was fun and it was just enough change to keep me going and I'm happy to say my knitting mojo is back. The winner of last week's giveaway is Jessie Love. You've won three skeins of hinterland yarn from my little shop, The Woolful Mercantile. The giveaway this week is sponsored by is sponsored by Mountain Meadow Wool and we're giving away two skeins of their new yarn, Powell a four-ply worsted weight yarn made of 85% mountain merino and 15% alpaca. To enter this giveaway, leave a comment on today's episode's blog post at woeful.com. I wanted to make sure and thank our second sponsor today, Tin Can Knits. Alexa and Emily have created several endearing collections of modern, clearly written patterns that feature accessories and garments each size for babies all the way up to 4XL. 
I really loved their road trip in Max and Bodie's wardrobe collections and hope to make the flyaway blanket this fall. They'll be releasing the final pattern of the Max and Bodie's wardrobe collection on June 11th, so make sure to find this and their other collections on Ravelry, and to keep up with all the going-ons, visit tincanknits.com. The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. Sonia, Karen, Valerie, Carrie, Amy, Maria, Leanne, Kirsten, Alexa, and Emily. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating fiber folk. For podcast notes and transcription, visit woeful.com. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast, including a man on the street segment or as an episode or giveaway sponsor, shoot me an email at hello at woeful.com. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>